0: Hello everyone and welcome to the latest and last of our Best of 2022 podcast. And this time round is all about film. And I'm joined once again by Chris Ward and Wesley Shearer. Hello both.
1: Hello. Nice to, nice to uh, be here again and chatting about the in film.
0: Well, it wouldn't be Christmas without us chatting about <laughs> films and stuff, I think. That's I'm going to claim anyway. So like previous times, we've each picked five films with me, uh, film-ish. Uh, but five films each to talk about. Um, so, Chris, as you are to the top left of my screen, do you want to go first?
2: Uh, sure, yeah. Well, I, I I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't know. I thought I would have a kind of lead-in. Uh, I guess <laughs> I'll just start with my uh, my favourite of the year, which was uh, Benediction, the new film from Terence Davies, who... I think he's at this point probably one of England's two greatest living filmmakers. The only kind of rival I can think of for him is Mike Lee. Um, and arguably his greatest ever queer director. I can't think of anybody other than maybe Derek Jarman who could rival him at this point. He's maybe Bill like of, still like,
0: alive, just to let you know.
2: I said England, the clarified oh, England? rather than Scotland, yes, because I knew I knew if I said that, <laughs> I knew that I'd get picked up from Bill for a Forsyth. Um, sorry so yeah I know because if you brought it to the UK like Lynn Ramsay's right there as well yeah, so yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm narrowing the field here but um, yeah he like he traditionally makes these kind of like memory pieces like his kind of yeah. early work you know like um, Distant Voices Still lives, yeah. Long Day Closes they're all kind of more or less autobiographical and very warm-hearted but also very kind of clear-eyed about his upbringing in Liverpool it doesn't shy away from you know kind of the harder side of like his upbringing domestic abuse and being like a kind of a like a gay Catholic boy in the fifties, you know, growing up and with seeing like movies as his outlet and all this kind of stuff, you know, and um, then in the past decade, has kind of moved on more to kind of like literary adaptations. So he did uh, the deep blue sea, the, uh, the adaptation the Terence Rattigan play uh, with Rachel Weiss and Tom Hiddleston. He did sunset song, of course, uh, with Agnes Dean. Uh, And most recently before this one did uh, A Quiet Passion, which was a biopic of Emily Dickinson uh, with Cynthia Nixon, Mm -hmm. which all great, like all consistently brilliant. Um, But this one was something else. So uh, Benediction is kind of, again, a biopic of uh, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, the poet who's obviously best known for his war poetry. Um, And it kind of chronicles his life in two separate time periods. So in the first one, it's from round about the midpoint of the First World War, uh, where he's played by Jack Loudon. Um, and then flashes forward throughout the film to his 60s, where he's played by Peter Capaldi. And um, it chronicles these two periods, one in, in the Capaldi section is around about the time that he converts to Catholicism. And in the kind of earlier Jack Loudon periods is the period where he basically decided he wasn't going to fight in the war anymore and not really a conscientious, conscientious objector. It is incredibly difficult to say that uh, and enunciate properly. Um, basically was going to, had had enough and was going to tell the truth, wasn't going to, you know, parrot the kind of honorable deaths kind of line anymore and was just going to do the kind of unvarnished, this is all these boys are dying senseless deaths. It's a horrible way to die kind of thing. Um, but kind of, the film kind of threw me for a look because I heard that he was doing like a Sassoon biopic and thought like, oh, well, it's going to be largely kind of wartime set, right? And a lot of it's going to, you're going to be in the trenches and all that. there isn't really any, in fact, off the top of my head, I don't know that there is any kind of battle footage. It starts with him being sent to uh, the psychiatric hospital in Edinburgh where he met Wilfred Owen, um, basically after saying, you know, being declared it was that or be court-martialed. Um, so he goes there. And the war takes up maybe about half an hour of the film and then it stops and the rest of it becomes kind of a chronicle of like basically gay life in the twenties from, you know, the late teens through the the thirties as he embarks on a succession of, you know, unfulfilling, unsatisfying affairs with the likes of like Ivor Novello and um, like a few socialites along the way as well. And it's just really fascinating. I just thought it was like a really like, it's a period you don't really see reflected on screen and through that kind of lens that often how these kind of upper class guys largely like middle to upper class guys basically i mean obviously like it would have been difficult for them to be openly gay in a kind of setting like that but just like basically could live a fairly open life amongst their circle of friends you know all these kind of very like indulgent kind of aristocratic women who love them all and all this kind of stuff and uh Seaford so soon in the middle of it is this very principled kind of you know moralistic would be the wrong word but a very ethical guy who like just kind of wants to live you know his own kind of life and amongst all of this and not really you know is kind of bound by the society at the time and is very conflicted about a lot of things and doesn't really feel like he fits in with the kind of the more kind of gallivanting you know socialite aspects of the scene and all this kind of stuff um and then yeah that kind of heartbreak of eventually conforming to, to like a marriage for to save face um which then kind of comes back to haunt him in the kind of later session with Capaldi. It's just a really, really beautifully done film. I think even the way I'm describing it doesn't, it. <laughs> doing it justice. It's really, it's nowhere near as dry as that makes it sound. It's nowhere near as worthy as that makes it sound. It's very like achingly beautiful and passionate and just very like sensitively shot and sensitively realized. And uh, I, I think it's like Davies' most adventurous In terms of like formal filmmaking as well, he's really embracing digital with this, a lot of really innovative ways of like collapsing the two time periods into one another and like really playing up the kind of digital aspect of digital filmmaking, you know, a lot of like superimpositions and like archive footage and just everything kind of collapsing in a kind of collage like kind of fashion at times and transitioning between the two time periods. Um, yeah, it's just it's, it's staggering, and the fact that I, I'm so glad that Terence Davies continues to make work because it looked for a while, like throughout the kind of two thousands, <laughs> that he wasn't getting money on a regular basis, you know. But he's had quite a prolific decade, and I hope it kind of continues um, for as long as we have him because he's he's one of the best.
0: He's proved to be one of the best, and I think proved to be really um, versatile as well, which. After these early films, you kind of thought you knew what a Terence Davies film was, you know, it would be black and white, and, you know, it, it, it would be about his self and his, you know, youth. And then when he did Sunset Song, I thought, well, how's he, how's he going to approach this? And actually, it was fantastic. It was uh, as good or better than I ever expected it to, it to be. And this sounds but- like another shift
2: yeah I think the common well yes but I think the common thread through all of them is like he's he's fascinated with like kind of outsiders you know and people who don't really fit comfortably into the society of their time whether that's like I mean I, I realized when I was like given the overview of his filmography I completely elided like you know he did House of Mirth with Gillian Anderson as well which obviously needed for an adaptation and was she if not completely you know about that kind of thing as well um So that seems to be like the through line is people who don't really feel like they fit into the society that they're, you know, born into, or, you know, they are somehow odds with it, but not in a kind of subversive way, like, like a Derek Jarman would or something like this. It's just, it's more that kind of like... I guess this is my lot and I'm just gonna have to put up with it kind of thing you know it's that very resigned very kind of like how do I how do I live with myself in this kind of context kind of thing which again makes it sound absolutely miserable and it's not there's so much kind of like warmth and humanity and like depth of feeling to the whole thing I just yeah it just absolutely was not what I was expecting from the setup and yeah it just really blindsided me I thought it was absolutely tremendous really beautiful that's film
0: that's a strong start Leslie what are you going to pick first?
1: Thanks for that Chris, yeah. Um, I don't know actually, I think that sounds really interesting, it's not one that was on my radar at all so I'm glad you brought it up, um, definitely going to check it out. Um, my picks this year are a bit strange, they're probably not all my best my my, best my favourite picks of the year they're just ones I find interesting to talk about but this first pick definitely is heads and shoulders above everything else, my favourite pick of the year and it's um, the worst person in the world. Now this came out quite early this year and I've tried to stay away from a lot of films from earlier in the year just because my memory's not particularly great but I actually rewatched watched this um, three times in the cinema. Now I've not seen it in the cinema actually since probably about April so it's, it was still a while away but I've watched it enough that I feel like I can talk about it. It's a little bit of a hazy memory but enough that I'll do it justice hopefully. But it really was, how do I put it, the first big hit for me in 2022. I think most of the films that I'd really held in what seemed at the time like high esteem, where, um like from the start of the year, at least anyway, were more films, maybe Parallel Mothers, The Tragedy of Macbeth, for example, films that really, you know, wowed me at the time, but just didn't really have that staying power or didn't have the kind of urge to rewatch it, unlike this film. And uh, there was some quiet hype around it, building up to the release of it. And I didn't really know much about it, didn't really know much about the director, took a punt and really grabbed a ticket for a preview of it um, like a month before it was released and set myself up for a bit of disappointment, didn't know what it was going to be like and honestly after finishing watching it I just hadn't felt like that about the first watch of a film since I saw maybe Phantom Thread or If Bill Could Talk I think are the ones that stand out for me in terms of just wanting to really go back in and watch it and immerse myself in the world and the characters and the, um, try and sort of chase that higher, the emotions that I felt the first time I watched it um, So, going into the film, I did do a bit more deep dive into um the director's filmography. The director is called uh, Joachim Trier, if I mm-hmm. pronounced that correctly. Hopefully, I have. Um, So, leading up to it, I watched his his first two big feature-length films, which were Reprise, which was about 2006, I think, and then another one in 2011 called Oslo, August 31st. Mm-hmm. The worst person in the world completes what latterly became sort of loosely defined as the oslo trilogy right and what really links all three films in the trilogy other than the obvious sense of place of it being set in oslo is this really kind of pursuit of uh how would i put it like a sense of freedom maybe and a sense of fulfillment in a society where success is probably defined for you and how that the pressures of really navigating that sort of world can impact on an individual's life in whatever way that Joachim Trier decides to explore in each of those three films. So while the first two films focus on stories of, of men, friendship, um, like a, a main, male lead in the second film, this really centres the experience of, of a woman, and a woman approaching her 30s. Um, and it's played absolutely brilliantly by um, Renata uh, Rinsve, who had a really small role in the second film, Oslo. But she takes the lead in this, and it's told through like a series of chapters narrated by her character Julie. Um, but the character narration is almost like a sort of third voice or kind of voice of reflection. And then you've got Anders Danielson Lee, who was the lead in the first two films, um, returning for a significant but sort of supporting role in this mm-hmm. film. And I should also add as well that you don't have to have watch the first two films to watch this; they're completely unrelated to story. Okay. Connected to the same themes. So yeah it was absolutely brilliant Um, it's it's like a really sort of wry self-deprecating take on the kind of pressures or the societal pressures at least that are imposed upon women I think and obviously that's not something I can speak to but it's something that I can see you know as quite a big theme in the film so maybe pressures that will then amplify themselves a bit more when women reach a certain age so things like the expectations of settling down falling in love starting a family having kids succeeding in a professional capacity but maybe in a career that is expected to be a bit more sensible for women so how do you navigate all of this when you don't know what it is that you want in your life mm-hmm. and how can you do all of this when all you can see ahead of you is like in the distance is like time marching towards you so things like can you pursue love if you haven't figured out how to love yourself all of these sort of themes that keep popping up and what that really does is Trier allows his lead's character to really have some questionable morals at different points throughout the film mm-hmm. um, and figure out how you rationalise the choices that she makes and it's just really nice to see something like that where you've got you know a female leads being really morally questionable sometimes in her decision making and it really allows her to explore these parts of her life in a way that's so messy so unpredictable very occasionally destructive but all of those things I think are just like leaving behind a decade of your youth as you transition into a new decade of adulthood that's really uncertain to you. Um, And it does, some of the best bits I think of the film is when it really drifts into this elements of magical realism that really elevate the concepts of the themes that he's talking about and exploring throughout the film. And it's something that Trier's done before in his second film, Oslo. There's like a really powerful scene where Danielson Lee's character is sitting in a cafe on his own. And this character is someone who is, you know, not in a good place and he's listening to the conversations that were that people are having around him really mundane trivial conversations that really seem like they're completely free of the weight that he's carrying in his life and then the worst person in the world is a sort of flip scene of that that's really beautiful and magical and uplifting and really ups the magical realism of everything and it's when julie the lead character flips a light switch in her kitchen and the whole world stops completely stops except her and it's like freeze frame, and she runs through the streets of Oslo as the cameras sweeping chasing after her, while everything and everyone is absolutely frozen around her, and I won't explain why that's significant in the story, because you should just watch it yourself without, you know, knowing the outcome of it, but it's just so beautifully choreographed, and Trier speaks to, I think, maybe the New York Times about why this isn't how he did it, and he says that he didn't want to make it CG and really easy to do digitally. So they basically shut down all these streets in Oslo that it's filmed on and used extras who were just really good at just standing still and not moving. (laughs) And he said, it was absolutely magical, he said, because when people saw in the streets nearby that this was happening, it was just after COVID coming out of lockdowns and stuff. Some other people just started joining in who weren't even extras, who just decided to strike a pose and just stop. And it, it just really adds to the realism element of it where the magical stuff's also happening. And it's just so beautiful, and it's one of the standout scenes of the year for me, I think, in cinema in recent years. So I'd really recommend it. It's very modern dilemma that it deals with, and I say that in the and that I think it's quite a modern idea of being in your thirties is now maybe becoming what the what your twenties used to be decades ago. So it's only going to probably resonate with a very specific demographic um, of people more than it will a vastly universal audience. But it seemed to do really well. Um, the sort of the indie world anyway and it got a lot of kind of big coverage and i just loved it i will also say that I, the three things i watched it in the cinema I was pretty tipsy every single time so i'm yet to watch it sober so we'll see how that sounds. Ah, out.
0: get back but, to um, us when you watch it sober
1: yeah exactly but i did i did love it it was it was magical and it's it's one of the ones that's just stayed with me um, and i think it will continue to do so
0: uh that sounds amazing as well so my first choice is My Old School. So I'm going to try and keep it Scottish-related, uh, uh, which was a struggle this year. But My Old School, have, have either of have you seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, OK, well. So do you know that... Well, I'll tell you what it's about. So it's a documentary by John O'Miller. And back in the... I want to say, about, it might the early 90s, I think, there was this big story that happened at Bearsden Academy that one of the pupils who they thought was 17 turned out to be 32, or so. that was the thing, and this was a huge thing. The block, and I remember it well because I was uh, roughly a bit, bit older than that. Uh, then, so the John Gill McLeod, the director, was one of the classmates of the guy who called himself Brandon Lee. He joined the school, I think, two weeks after the real Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son, had died on set of the crow. So, even then, classmates are going. Really Brandon Lee? So it turns out his real name is Brian McKinnon and he'd been at that school as a kid. So he'd gone back to the same school that Tom and teachers who taught him originally were still teaching them the second round and no bells were wrong and all this kind of stuff. It's an incredible story, but the film's incredible as well because he's interviewed for the film but he doesn't want to be on screen. So Alan Cummings lip syncs all the interviews that goes for it, and he does it brilliantly. I mean, it's such a restrained and subtle performance because that's how the the voice is. It's quite odd. He's got this transatlantic twang. He he said he was from Canada, even though he wasn't. He was from Bears you know? Um, And it's it's such a weird story. And because MacLeod's his classmate, all the other interviews with classmates are so relaxed and revealing, you know? And uh, and some of them are really heartbreaking. There was a woman who was in the school play with them, South Pacific, and they were the two leads. And her memory was that when they had to kiss, it was just, he barely kissed me, it was like a pick on the cheek, but they find footage of this and it's a proper snog. I mean, it's a re- and she's really quite upset by this because, because of the circumstances that then unfold. So it's that weird thing about if you made a film like this and it was a fictional film, you'd think, ah, nah, no chance, it would never happen. But yet it did happen. And uh, it, was, I, it was probably my film of the year in a weird way because I think because I did know the story and getting to uh, hear exactly how it happened. Because when he walked in on the first day, heads were like that that's a man. You know, they thought he was the student teacher. And when he sat down with them, they were like, What's going on here? And yet the t- other teachers, you know, loved him because he was very polite and because he was in his 30s. Of course he was. And uh but they never no 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 problems flashed up. And it was only when he went on holiday with three other girls that were in his class that he kind of said to them, actually, I'm 30 odd, and this is my real name. And you know, and the reason he he said he did it, I kind of believe it was, was because he wanted to be a doctor, he wanted to study medicine. And he dropped out when he was young the first time round and for various reasons had to work other jobs. And then by the time, I don't know if it's still this way, but in Scotland, if you're th- over 30, you couldn't study medicine, you couldn't go to university to do medicine at that time, anyway. So that's why he went back to the school to get his. A levels or what he's higher as it would be to go to go and do medicine yet again. But of course it all fell apart and then the news were on it and just an astonishing story. Um and yeah, but a true one at that. It's an amazing film. That is
1: wild. I have so many questions, and I'm like, I'll just watch the film because it could be here for hours. Yeah, because a lot of
0: it's animated. all the stuff from from his life at school when he was younger is all animated, things like that, you know. Uh it is trying- interesting as well. But-
1: He was driving him
0: around when he was like, you know, they they were like, what are you doing driving a car? And he went, oh, I got my thing in Canada. You can be younger in Canada and get your license. Just, the the lies just tripped off his tongue. He says his grandma uh, had died and that's why he needed time off school. Not only was his gran alive, his gran was actually his mum. And all these people had gone and kind of been in his house and she was going along with it. You know, she was, oh, it was just it's, it's so odd, but it's The real joy of it, actually, is the stuff between the, the old schoolmates and reminiscing of their school days with this kind of endearing character to them. To a lot of them, you know, he was a pal and he stood up for them and all sorts of things. But, yeah, of course he was mature for his age because he was 32.
2: I think it's really striking as well, just hearing you talk about that, about, like, you know... One thing that I noticed, although I didn't see the film, like it was a huge hit, at, like the GFT and that, like it did so well, they kept it on for like three weeks. It was sold out screenings more often than not. I think they brought it back for even a wee while after that. Like it, it people just could not get enough of it. And I think it's really testament to how like if you give people, like, a story with a good hook like that in an environment that they recognise, you know, then people will turn out for it. You know, it was the same, like, I went to the film festival this year, I went to the 20th anniversary, uh, 20th anniversary screening the Sweet 16,
1: yeah.
2: a Ken Loach film, and, like, the number of people at that screening that you would never usually expect to find in the GFT who you could hear, like, over like overhearing people who had, like, a working knowledge of the filmography of Ken Loach just because, you know, he consistently makes stories that represent them and put them on screen and like people appreciate stuff like that you know people turn out for it and I think that's maybe something that gets forgotten a lot of the time in terms of like you know making films for like wide audiences in particular regions you know and the value of that and how like people will be loyal to that kind of thing and, and well, stand by and right. actually support it
0: because people that would remember that story would say oh, I remember that and then go in to see it for that reason and apparently when uh, that sinking feeling was being sold on a uh, DVD with the B- BFI version, I think, um, it was the biggest selling DVD of that year and 70% of the sales were Glasgow, <laughs> you know, so it is exactly, that's exactly what you're saying Chris, what about yeah. your next choice?
2: Um, I guess I'll just go chronologically for the rest, then. Um, since I've got the best, my favourite one out of the way. Um, so this was one we were saying before we started recording, Ali. Like when you talk about like not remembering what was this year and what wasn't. This was one that came out. I think I saw it in previews between Christmas and New Year last year, and then it officially opened here on New Year's Day. So you're really talking, like, right after we recorded last year. But uh, Licorice Pizza, the latest Paul Thomas Anderson film, obviously a stalwart of these end-of-year recordings for us. Uh, All big Phantom Thread fans, I seem to remember. And uh, before that, The Master and Inherent Vice and so on and so forth. Um, So this is his latest one. And again, it's kind of like, it's not really autobiographical, because he would have been younger at the time in the characters that he portrays in the film, but it's set in 70s LA, and it's kind of, I guess maybe kind of in a similar style of what Tarantino did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, at least for a long stretch of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's more just kind of about capturing like the vibe of the time, it's kind of like a hangout movie, it's not really, there's not really a propulsive plot driving it forward or anything, it's just about spending time with the characters as they kind of go from one situation to another, Um, and it stars... Uh, Alana Haim from the band Haim uh, as uh, Alana Kane so a kind of I guess like a 70s version of herself or not too far removed from herself Uh, her sisters are played by her sisters and bandmates in Haim, their parents are played by their actual parents um, and she's in her mid 20s and I guess kind of similar to uh, like the worst person in the world kind of having that kind of mild identity crisis of like I don't really know what I'm doing with my life she's drifting through a series of jobs she's uh, as the film opens she's working for a high school photographer where she meets a, a like strikingly self assured 15 year old called Gary Valentine who is played by Cooper Hoffman the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman himself obviously a veteran of the Paul Thomas Anderson repertory company um, who tells him that he's a child actor and he's an entrepreneur and he has all this stuff going on in the background and she's kind of fascinated by him and he asks her out and she's like, no, I'm 25 and you're 15. No, it's not happening. But she's kind of fascinated enough by him to be friends with him and kind of continue to hang out with him just try and figure him out. And it just kind of follows them through like a few months in early 70s LA. um, And it is kind of, part of it is kind of like that kind of dazed and confused style period piece where it's just, it's all very amiable and hanging out. But I remember the first time I saw it, I came out of it and I was like, why am I so tense in the chest? Like nothing bad actually happens to these people all the way through it. It's all about all their kind of like, all the kind of obstacles to their well being are all very minor in the grand scheme of things, but there's just some kind of subconscious like anxiety rumbling through it I think you know just kind of these wee kind of discordant notes around the edges that kind of captured how I guess kind of the weirdness of that time in your life you know where you're trying to figure yourself out and your place in the world and that and it kind of yeah there's nothing overt but just these very kind of subliminal kind of notes of, of discord all the way through but it plays really nicely with like the interplay of fact and fiction as well there's a lot of people playing like actual characters or uh, actual characters actual people uh, from that kind of era in la and a, a few who are also like kind of composites so like sean penn shows up as a composite of a couple of actors most notably william holden who plays a version of william holden called um i think you see jack holden i think his name is in it um, and Tom Waits shows up as a director Rex Blau fantastic name for anybody who would be played by Tom Waits has one of the shots of the year this his entrance is incredible, he's like backlit there's like plumes of cigarette smoke around him he's just a silhouette, very recognisable outline of Tom Waits um, but you also have people playing, yeah, real life figures like um, Bradley Cooper is in it as John Peters, the uh, Hollywood celebrity hairdresser who inspired shampoo uh, oh. with Warren Beatty, um, and was the the boyfriend of Barbara Streisand at the time, and uh, then went on to a career producing movies. I think he's still working to this day. Uh, you have uh, Benny Safdie, who is one of the director, one of the Safdie brothers, who directed Uncut Gems and and Good Time as Joe Wax, who is one of the longest serving city council members in, in LA history. He's uh, on his first mayoral race in this. Alana gets caught up in kind of his mayoral campaign. um, And yeah, it's just, it's a very charming film, I think, but maybe not the unambiguous good time, <laughs> you kind know, of that a lot of people maybe took it as. I think the, the problem with it is that, or not the problem with the film, but maybe with the way that a lot of people read it is that, taking it as um like cooper hoffman's story than a rather than alana himes because i think if you if you read it it from a 15 year old boy's point of view then it's a very wish fulfillment like oh i'm I'm going out with a 25 year old kind of thing you know or i'm trying to go out with a 25 year old just tolerating my efforts up to a point but i don't think that's the film that was actually made i think it's mostly meant to be seen from alana's point of view and it's more a kind of is she going to be stuck in this kind of endless cycle of like going from one degrading job to the next like dead-end relationships and all this kind of thing one day that doesn't work out after another or is she actually going to move on with her life and it comes to a quite bleak conclusion on that front like if you read it from that point of view you know like the title licorice pizza refers to a kind of chain of la record shops um, like you know, because a record looks like a licorice pizza. And if you want to take that and run with it, like it's almost like she's stuck in the run-out groove, you know. It's like and she's looking for a way to like lift the needle on the record and flip the side over to really torture the metaphor. Um <laughs> and as the film concludes, she's she's still stuck in that run-out groove. She's arguably just going back to the start of the same side, you know, it's really not a happy ending for her. <laughs> um, despite maybe outward appearances is one where if you kind of stop and think about it for a couple of minutes you're like oh no this is this isn't going to go well you know so um yeah I think it's it's more complicated and more complex and I think it was maybe given a lot of initial credit for it. it's definitely not just the kind of like hey it's the first half of Boogie Nights with none of the downfall you know it's um that's, that's it's...
0: interesting because I think having us looked at the trailer I thought it was his story rather than hers. And that makes me want to watch it more than maybe I did previously. So I think I'll do that.
2: Yeah, she's great as well. It's worth pointing out, it's her first kind of role in a film and she's absolutely so charismatic, such a knockout, such a real kind of natural on screen, really, really can't speak highly enough for her. And the dynamic with her actual sisters is great as well. They're really fantastic, just really deadpan comic time. And you can tell like, obviously, They've spent so long playing on stage with each other at this point that they just have that really natural chemistry, and obviously being sisters, I say that as if like they've picked this up on the road or something. and They haven't spent like thirty five years living together or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's just very natural and it's a very a very adroit piece of casting. I think I think like it's something that came it basically came about from Paul Thomas Anderson having directed a bunch of music videos for them and um, kind of seeing something in her and wanting to kind of build a vehicle around her. Um and you can tell it's very is very lovingly done, I think. But yeah, really great showcase for her.
0: Wesley, what's your second choice? <sighs>
1: good question, Ali. Good question. I think um go for a little kind of short one that I watched recently that was very pleasant in an odd way. Um I think it was something I watched at the start of this month. It was called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Right. Um, and if I can just very briefly describe how it made me feel. I think it was basically just like a a big, warm, embracing, existential hug of a film. Um, To really describe it, it and it's it's not the type of film that you can really describe by plot or anything, but what it is is it's an anthology of three uh, vignettes, if you like, following three different women, predominantly, um, which are completely unrelated in story, but they are very much linked or united tonally by yeah. themes of fate or happenstance, however you want to look at it. One story involves maybe like misplaced love. Another story involves like a honey trap that goes wrong. Um, another story involves like a really chance um, mistaken identity in a meeting. Um, And they're all really linked by these themes, although they, as I said, do explore lots of different, things individually amongst those stories and um, i'm sure i read somewhere i can't remember i'm trying to think off the top of my head so i might get this completely wrong but i think the japanese title of it translates as um coincidence and imagination maybe right. um so that if true then obviously feeds into those themes a little bit more as well there's probably not much to look at in terms of the way it looks it's quite um quite a sparse film at least the cinematography is quite sparse um and the conversations it's very it's a very wordy film from start to finish um and it's conversationally led and the conversations on the surface i think seem very ordinary it's obviously subtitled so you you need to pay attention to it um, but you can still switch off a little bit if you don't kind of give it enough of your attention but when you start to kind of lean closer into it you can find yourself or at least i did find myself really sort of hypnotized by the kind of tranquil humanity at the heart of all of these stories Um it's a really fascinating little film and all those intimate conversations I was talking about they're all just like full of really little small nuggets of wisdom but they also dip their toes into kind of a bit of absurdist humor at times as well which is quite interesting and it's it's made by so it's made and written by um, a director who most people will probably know by now I'm um, called a uh, Ryazuki Hamaguchi um, who I was completely unaware of because I have not seen the film that he directed that was given loads of plaudits, which was Drive My Car, which I think was a favourite of yours, Chris, last year.
2: Yeah, I really like Drive My Car. I think I talked about it on last year's podcast.
1: Yeah, and I was completely unaware of this. I just came across this film, thought I'd throw it on a movie, watched it, and was like, after looking it up, was like, oh, okay, it's the guy that did drive my car, the film that I really wanted to see, but couldn't bring myself to sit in the cinema for three and a bit hours or whatever the length was um but I just kind of came away from it thinking is this guy like an absolute master of dialogue because the the dialogue was incredible throughout it it was really poetic really lyrical but it was poetic it was lyrical it was touching on all these human notions in a really short and snappy way but it did it all without ever disappearing up its own arse and to be quite honest I think that's a talent in and of itself um so yeah I think you've maybe seen this Chris if you have I'd be interested to see what how you think that compares to drive my car in terms of tone and theme because obviously I've not seen that and this is my first
2: film with his yeah I really liked it I've seen a few Hamaguchis as well and like you think Drive My Car is long like he also has one called Happy Hour which is five hours long which I did on a bank holiday Monday this year in one go um I would say yeah Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy feels a lot kind of lighter to me than Drive My Car like Drive My Car is very much about someone kind of working through grief and all this kind of stuff and it's um I guess just as a function of like being split into three shorter stories there's nothing as kind of I don't want to say suffocating about driving my car because it's it's, it's a great film and I think everybody should you know anybody who is the slightest bit interested in it should should check it out but it feels kind of like I think he made it they they actually came out initially both last year he made them kind of like immediately one after the other and I, I can't remember what order they were in or if it would maybe I think was was driving my car maybe shut down by kind of lockdown or something like this. And this was something that he did yeah. just as a kind of exercise in between shoots or something like that. I think I heard something like that and it feels much kind of lighter and more freewheeling, I think, than, um, than driving my car. I mean, obviously there is still some kind of like weighty stuff kind of dealt with within it. Um, But you're you're certainly not getting anything that is as kind of lighthearted as the kind of the final segment in this one with the two women kind of reuniting after a long time and then mistaken identities and all this kind of thing. Um that's not you're not getting anything like that in drive my car. Um I I think like the the middle story in this one is really is great. I think that's potentially like one of this kind of scenes of the year is just this kind of one-on-one between like a college professor and, you know, student. And it's, yeah, it's it's really well handled. It doesn't necessarily go the ways that you would expect it to go given the kind of setup of it. And again, kind of, it's something that I liked. I was going to say it's a bit worse person in the world as well. I like, I like that we are beginning to see films like that that actually do kind of play with a lot of very contemporary concerns. Because I think a lot of the time, films are kind of maybe afraid maybe because of how long it takes to make a film now and get funding and all that kind of you're worried by the time something comes out that will be dated already but it's been nice to see films this year that actually do engage like directly with kind of the issues of the day you know or however you want to put it um and like yeah that felt like a very direct address to like kind of me too kind of stuff and kind of the kind of like kind of not your kind of thornier issues around it uh in the same way that like you know um the worst person in the world did it directly as well you know with like this stuff on like cancel culture and like there's a there's a chapter in worst person in the world that directly references me too. right it has like me yeah. too and it's like the hashtag is in the chapter title um so yeah, it was just it, it's nice to see like stuff like that where it actually feels like it is. Oh yeah, this is, this has been made within the last couple of years. This is stuff that's actually directly relevant to stuff that's happening now, you know. And it's not necessarily concerned with like timelessness or anything like that. You know, it, it will be a nice time capsule in in years to come. But yeah, no, it's thoroughly really recommend. That I really liked Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy as well.
0: Well, my next choice um, doesn't concern uh, the <laughs> modern guns of today because it's the Hermit of Trague. Uh, It was shot over 10 years, I think, kind of almost three years to get it set up for him to agree to allow the filmmaker, um, Lizzie McKenzie, to do it and to stay with him and shoot him and all of these kind of things. I think what I might do is cheat a little bit and read you a bit of the synopsis, because otherwise I would just be rambling to explain what the thing uh, is about. A meticulous diarist and an avid photographer, Ken Smith, has spent the past four decades in the Scottish Highlands living alone in a log cabin. Cabin near Loch Traig, known as the Lonely Loch. He has no electricity or running water. He lives off the land, fishing for his supper, chopping wood, and even brewing his own tipple. Filmed over 10 years, director Lizzie McKenzie captures Ken's profound spiritual relationship with his with the wilderness. And it's an amazing film. It was beautiful short, but then I kind of think with that, to work with the landscape and everything, you would struggle not to make it beautiful. Um, it's about his relationship with nature and about man's relationship with nature as well, but it's also about ageing and particularly, he's in his 70s, you know, so if he's been there four decades you have got the kind of young wood chopper, you know, catching fish with his teeth and all that, you can imagine the young man up there and then you have got this guy in his 70s who's beginning to become frail and he has to go to hospital for instance for a couple of times, so he does start to rely on others and he has to rely on others and I think Lizzie filming him also becomes his friend and not carer, I wouldn't go as far as that, but certainly you know is caring for him and cares about him. I mean he's a fascinating character, uh, uh, charismatic in his own way absolutely and um, he's not someone that you think well he's been out of the way so he absolutely knows nothing, he just knows what he wants to do and what he wants to be and happy completely happy on his own and doing all the things he's doing you know there's people that kind of help him out when he needs it throughout his life but it's becoming clear as the film progresses and as we get to know him that he is um he is going to be need more help from others and uh, and you know that's the kind of sad part of it although i do believe he had, attended the Glasgow Film Festival showing, which I think was his first time, you know, in the big city for many, many, many years. And it won the Audience Award uh, at the Film Festival as well this year, which I think is telling too. Um, Yeah, I was really moved by it, not just the way it was shot, but moved by this whole idea. Maybe it's just me ageing as well. Uh, about ageing, you know, it it really felt there was some kind of real... uh, as as the, the seasons change and as he has to, he's changing constantly. But they they are renewing themselves. But he isn't. He's kind of only going in one direction. And there's something quite you kind know, of moving about that. I think kind of poetic about that too. And I think Lizzie McKenzie really does capture, you know, not just the character but the whole situation that he he kind of desires to be in. Do you, either of you seen it? No,
1: it's been on my list. Um... I not yeah, I remember seeing, as you said, him attending the 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 festival and that really sort of stuck with me and made me kind of want to watch that a lot more as well because the story around it sounds incredible. But yeah, I've not had the chance to see it yet, unfortunately. I
0: think it might be on iPlayer, maybe not, but uh, it certainly was uh, shown on BBC Scotland uh, during the year. We've done 45 minutes on only two films each, so we'll just crank it up i <laughs> Chris, what's your next uh, film?
2: Okay, well, this is a kind of handbrake turn from the Hermit of Trig, but my favorite kind of blockbuster of the year by some distance was uh, Nope, Jordan Peele's third film. I guess we can call it a blockbuster. It was released at the height of the summer season and had like, you know, the big full PR rollout for all that. But it is a very weird film by blockbuster standards. Like it really takes its time getting going. There's a lot of digressions. It doesn't really reveal what it's about until like, you know, a sizable way in. And it really kind of... Relies on the audience's patience, but I really appreciate that about it. I think it is something that is like it's proven quite divisive. We, uh, I went with like two others and we ran the gamut from one hated it, one thought it was fine, and I loved it, you know. So it really is gonna, I think it has split reactions, but it's just been fascinating to watch Jordan Peele kind of grow as a filmmaker in the last few years because obviously he started out as a like a comedian, a sketch comic, you know, with Key and Peele and stuff, and then get out with such a massive cultural phenomenon, you know, like it was just such a, 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 um, you know critical success commercial success just a, a cultural touchstone for like you know so much other stuff in years to come yeah. um and it's just yeah as he's going on he's kind of allowed himself to get a little bit kind of freer and a little bit you know willier and a little bit kind of more like experimental and exploratory with his ideas because get out is so kind of like tightly controlled you know it's like this every single detail like means something you know but almost to the point that we're you can go back and rewatch it, but you're kind of getting the same thing from it every time you might notice little details like, Oh, when he's, he's picking cotton, you know, in the armchair to keep himself alive. You know, it's like, there's a metaphor there, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the pleasures and rewatch and stuff like that is when it's more open to interpretation. So like, I've I kind of always preferred us to get out because of that, because it's like, his metaphor isn't as like strictly tethered to no pun intended for us. Um, but it's not as strictly tethered to like one idea, you know, like the, the kind of the tethered in us could be, you know, any societal issue you care to point at and Nope kind of takes that even further. There's just so much going on with it. You know, it's about, The erasure of black artistry from cinema history it's about like the society of spectacle it's about the exploitation of child actors and animal actors if you can even call animals actors at any point um is arguably about the transition from like analog to digital it's like there's just so much going on in it and it really kind of takes its time like exploring all of that fully it's about a um, a family of um, black horse trainers um, who live in on a ranch in California. They, their horses are used have been used in films throughout film history. They they claim that one of their ancestors is the the jockey in the Edward Muybridge film, very early film of of a black rider on a horse. Yep. Um, and uh, something weird is happening in the skies around around their ranch, uh, and they come to realize that there's some sort of UFO lurking in the clouds um but it's not quite as straightforward as that um and it turns out it's not actually a ufo craft but the thing itself is is an animal of sorts some kind of predator and and when it abducts people it's eating them like it's actually it actually has kind of jaws and teeth and you kind of see this happen at one point in one pretty disturbing sequence you know you see like a pov shot from inside the alien of people basically being taken in and eaten by it um but around this it spins all these stories about like you know there's a, a former child star who now runs like a really tacky cowboy ranch um who survived uh, a, a chimp attack on set like it was a set where they had a chimp actor and the chimp went crazy and like bit off someone's face and stuff like this but you know all this kind of stuff um there's all stuff about like bad miracles there's a, it opens with a quote from like the book of nehun i think like the biblical book of i, I don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and uh yeah there's just so much so much going on with it. there's so much to digest and so much to take in and i can see why people wouldn't like it because it doesn't really come close to your traditional satisfactory payoffs in a lot of ways you know it really takes its time again where it's, going. it's about two hours 20 minutes and that's really just working through its ideas that's not like you know we're gonna have action scene after action scene there's gonna be you know like payoff after payoff after payoff it's not you know it's it's really like it wants you to think about what it's doing you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of almost been Trojan horse into the form of a summer blockbuster, you know, um, he's really got a lot in his mind. And um, I think this is a very reductive way to describe it, but it reminded me of, you know, the, the Simpsons Halloween episode um, with the segment is called like Attack of the 50 Foot Eyesores. Mm-hmm. And it's where the advertising hoardings come to life and they realize that the only way they can get around it is to tell people not to look at them. Uh, so they get so they get paul anka to write a jingle you know called just don't look and it's basically that basic idea blown up to like a grand scale it's like this kind of like the only way we're going to get around this is if you don't look at it and you can read into that however you want you know if like yeah it's a commentary from peel on like the state of the industry like you know anything that you don't like in modern cinema is only going to go away if you just stop paying attention to it you know all this kind of stuff so there's a lot that you can read into it but uh yeah, I think it's one. I've only seen it once. I'm I'm desperate to see it again. I really like I think it will really reward repeat viewings. Uh and I'm very excited to see what he does next.
0: Excellent. And uh it wouldn't be a film podcast without Chris putting a reference to The Simpsons in it somewhere along the <laughs> line.
2: <laughs> it wouldn't be a day in my life without me putting a
0: reference to the Simpsons in it. Wesley, what's your next one?
1: Um, Since we're talking about blockbusters, then I'll stick with, uh, kind of stick with the theme. It's not exclusively a blockbuster, it has a blockbuster feel to it. Um, Could you say it's a mid-budget film? I don't know the finances of it, but maybe it was. Um, But it definitely, you know, aims for the sky in terms of making it feel like a blockbuster film. Um, And it's everything, everywhere, all at once, which I only watched um, two days ago, actually. Um totally missed all the discourse around it. I watched it a couple of days ago. Um, so uh, I wish
2: I missed all the discourse around it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's happened for quite a lot of films this year, including Licorice Pizza, which I'm glad I also missed the discourse around. Um, but yeah, part of me thinks that this film, I will start it off by saying part of me thinks this film will age terribly. It really nice. Um It's over stuff with like, all this visual imagery and super quick edits that I feel is really, like, dialed in to appeal to... Directly to the sort of smartphone generation, if you like. And I also can't help that at times... But feel like at times it comes off as a little insincere. But what I would be saying is I'd be completely lying if I didn't say that... If I said I didn't completely enjoy the ride of it, because I I did enjoy the experience of watching it. And I think it's a really interesting film um, from this year to talk about. Um, How to put it? I mean, in terms of the blockbuster element of it... (laughs) At the risk of sounding like Harry Styles, <laughs> this is the most movie a movie can actually get. Ali, please do not quote clip and quote that out of context.
0: No, but, I won't do that.
1: <laughs> it made me what I mean by that is it when I watched it on my couch on Thursday night, it really did make me want to rush out to like the nearest Dolby cinema and just soak up every inch of like all the chaotically engineered visuals and the finely tuned sound design. And it was just an exhilarating experience and yeah, it's definitely one of those ones I feel like I, I was gonna say I wish it would be the film that was trying to get people back into cinemas again, but I think it did not bad considering the budget. Anyway, I think it was pretty. A twenty four is one of the most successful films, so um, that's quite impressive. But it's one of those films again, like one of the a few of ones I've talked about. You should definitely go into this one with absolutely nothing about it, so I won't get any, any of the details of the plot itself. But it is bursting at the seams with lots of different invention, and it does span kind of multiple different genres and. It's all multiverse related, which is not something that really appeals to me generally as a storyline, but um, there's a bit of clunky exposition to get to the point. Some of it feels a little bit repetitive, but what I find most interesting about it is the way that it takes a very 2022 approach, a very maximalist approach, if you like, to something that is a kind of deeply tender story about intergenerational trauma and a story that's very specific to the immigrant experience. Now, obviously... That is like something that I'm bringing up really because I think it's the perfect example of a film that can have mass appeal in a big screen, in a sort of popcorn munching way, but will also completely resonate on a really much deeper level with those specific audiences that can connect to its central themes that obviously I can't specifically do. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they're very, very different in a number of ways, and I wouldn't say they're the same film at all, but the sort of core theme of the intergenerational immigrant experience um, that I can't personally speak to, specifically the story of a complex relationship between a mother and a daughter in that environment. I couldn't help but think of another film that I really enjoyed this year, um, which was Turning Red, the animated film that Disney put out. And the reason I think of that is because I think to how Disney completely done it dirty by sending it straight to streaming, while putting things like Lightyear on a big uh, big theatrical release, for example. So... Very interesting film. Didn't work for me on all levels. Um, don't know how it would hold up in a rewatch for me. So I think I might just leave it where it is. But <laughs> it's, I think we really need more stories like this with mainstream appeal being given the chance to succeed in cinemas. And I'm really g- glad that that's an example of that, even if I am sort of still on the fence about my overall feelings on it.
0: Chris, have you seen it? Are
1: you? No, I haven't. But I have seen plenty of
2: other Michelle Yeoh films, and I can heartily recommend it. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I was
0: going to mm-hmm. thought you were going to say other multiverse films, but I guess no. you know.
2: Like <laughs> no, well, I did actually. Uh,
0: go, go.
2: No, I let you go, Ali. Never mind. I was going to go off on a tangent. We don't have time. On you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to talk blockbuster as well, and this was a film I think that got people back into cinemas, and it is Batman. Is it the Batman? The Batman. It's the definite article, isn't it? And it's uh it's the emo Batman, definitely. You know, this the one that listens to Nirvana and uh you know uh, yeah. I, I, but I th- actually think Robert Kilpatrick uh, uh, that's who it was, isn't it? Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson, Robert Kilpatrick, who the hell's that? Robert Pattinson, I, I think he plays it quite well. I prefer it to the kind of middle-aged spread of Ben Affleck's uh Batman. Um but it's not, you know, it's not Christian Bale, I would say. Uh, I'm claiming it a little bit as a Scottish film because loads of it were shot in Glasgow, um, as we know. Um, very dark film. I mean, literally a very dark film. It was difficult to see <laughs> what the hell was going on at, at times. Um, lots of, yeah, it, it was. I enjoyed it. It was the one that got me back in a kind of multiplex cinema seat, you know, that you could lay back in and all of that stuff. Um, went with a couple of pals to watch it, exactly that kind of film. But really I wanted to talk about it mainly because of that thing about getting people back into cinema and the kind of challenges that they face. So you've got this huge release that was kind of everywhere and I think probably did okay. I don't know what what how well it did but it does seem that it's still a struggle to get people back to cinema. What do you think?
2: Yeah I think by and large you're probably probably right but there have been counter examples this year that have been really strong i mean the one that immediately comes to mind is top gun like I, I i don't think anybody could have predicted i mean you know never write off tom cruise i guess but like um just the the sheer popularity of that like i, I couldn't believe it you know i mean like top gun is is you know has a place in people's hearts like, like nostalgia and stuff but even now if you look at like not
0: a good film you know
2: not not that I'm taking IMDB ratings as the be all end all, but top the original Top Gun has like uh somewhere between a six and a seven, I think, you know, on on audience ratings. And the new one is like in their top two fifty. Do you know? Like it's properly like people went nuts for it, people loved it, and I also really enjoyed it, you know, I mean, like, I'm not going to wholeheartedly endorse it by putting in the top five, because, you know, it's still a piece of, like, military propaganda, it's just a very, it's a very well-done piece of military propaganda, and, like, it it works, it plays an audience like a fiddle, I went and saw it on on opening night in IMAX, and it was sold out, and talk about, like, an all-ages crowd, like, I was between like two people probably my parents age on on one side and a group of teenage girls on the other side and everybody was like gasping all the way through and it just absolutely worked at every single level you know it's a very kind of muscular piece of old school filmmaking it feels weird to call like top gun old school filmmaking at this point but it does feel like a relic of a system that's not really in place anymore you know hollywood doesn't really do stuff like that with a lot of like physical stunt work and you know You're seeing every bit of the money that they spend on it up on screen, kind of thing. You know, so much is now put in, you know, CG and and you know. We're gonna shoot this on green screen uh in like a car park in Atlanta or something like this, you know, rather than actually going out and showing you something spectacular. And obviously Tom Cruise is a big part of that because he he's got found this like late in life commitment to, you know, being a Jackie Chan style like showman, like, no, you're gonna know it's me doing all this. I'm gonna I'm probably gonna die doing this for someday and you'll pay to see that too, you know. Um but uh yeah that and the other one that really stood out for me over the summer in terms of getting people back to cinemas and maybe even more surprising than top gun for me was elvis it felt like elvis really hit a certain kind of niche well, not even a niche because it was a wide audience but it really felt like it hit something that had maybe been missing for a lot of people and it became something that people said oh no you've got to go see this i didn't like elvis as much as i like top gun <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, be completely honest. Like my tolerance for Baz Luhrmann has has degraded as of as of yes. age. Um, but uh, I can definitely see why people like embraced it and why it was as popular as it was. But the kind of thing for me is okay. What? Well, why just those two films then? Why is it? Why is is it those two in particular that've connected? And you're still seeing other cinema's kind of struggling and you know, other films struggling i mean obviously we had the news this year but the film house closing um yeah. which is they such win. a massive loss and it's, it's that way we're like well what can we do genie's out of the bottle people become accustomed to like having everything available at their fingertips at home you know the stream like tvs are getting better you know sound systems are getting better they're not anywhere near like a cinema a good cinema experience but you know they're close enough for a lot of people kind of i guess in the same way that like Sure, the sound quality on Spotify is not great, but it's much more convenient than having, like, you know, records or CDs. clogging up the
0: system room. where everything's yeah. just it, yeah, that's true. That, it's just
2: so many people are, like, now kind of conditioned to expect convenience over, like, the actual quality of the presentation or something that for a lot of people it'll be good enough just to, you know, wait a few weeks, especially now that the theatrical release window's collapsed as well, and, you know, stuff is going to be on streaming within, like, a month or two of it being out in cinemas, you know? A lot of people are just like, well, why would I bother? um unless you know you have deep mental problems like me and you go like a couple of times a week still (laughs) um but uh i I, wonder if
0: uh you know you were saying how uh, you went to the gft and it was sold out for sweet 16 the kind of nostalgia i wonder if top gun is a global version of that you know Mm -hmm. everyone kind of even if they didn't go and see it back in the day they know Top Gun, it's got, you know, yeah. scenes which have been nicked from other films and all that kind of stuff, and it's such a kind of cultural touchstone, even if it's not very good, that people went, oh yeah, I want to kind of return to those days rather than that film.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point, and I think we are like sort of entering this weird period of of cinema, or re-entering this period of cinema as the experience again, and by experience I mean capital E-X-P-E-R continues, yeah. because coming out of the pandemic, as I said, people's Home. not everyone's able to do this, obviously, but a lot of people have been able to upgrade their home system, as Chris said, into something that, you know, we can get amazing sound, amazing TV, like amazing quality on the TV, um, really create that cinema experience in the living room. It's never going to match it. Of course it isn't. But for a lot of the major releases, and even a lot of the big Hollywood ones, that's probably good enough for a lot of people. But you're getting these big, big experiences like Top Gun Maverick, which is a collective experience, I think, because of that nostalgia. Um, Like Elvis, which is... A bit of a strange one, but, you know, it's got that Baz esque moment to it. It's a, it's a cultural moment, a Baz Luhrmann film, whether you like him or you don't. Um, and, and Elvis the,
0: is still hugely popular. And Elvis
1: is still huge across yeah. so many different um, like age ranges, exactly. And now, I mean, you're looking at Avatar The Way of Water, I mean, like, people are going back and sitting in a for what three hours with 3D glasses on, like what? What years, 15 that minutes.
2: Happens? I'm going tomorrow afternoon.
1: Three hours, 15 minutes. There you go, with 3D glasses on. I mean, you when would you ever think that that would be so? It, it's really starting to take hold in ways that mimic 15 years ago, but it's then what is suffering is the kind of smaller films. again, as we're saying, and the reason that is, as Chris obviously pointed out, is that the limited theatrical window means that people are just waiting for they're just being more choosy with their money. Obviously, understandably, yeah. with the situation we're in at the moment um they're picking out those big experiences and then going back to not gregory's girl sorry sweet 16. Mm-hmm. i was speaking to a friend about this recently not sweet 16 but the kind of difference between why they go to the cinema and why they don't and this friend's a really avid cinema goer; he goes all the time and it's his happy place and it still is but he said he's been dialing back some of the new releases that he usually goes to see because he knows they've got the limited theatrical release mm-hmm. and what he's doing instead is he's going to see a lot more classic films that yeah. Films that hold a place in his heart that he can then sit in a room with other people like many people to watch it and really feel that sort of, again, experience in the cinema, something that you just wouldn't get at home when you just throw it on in the background because yeah. you've seen it 15 times or whatever it is. So it's like those two ends of the experience spectrum, if you like, um, but that whole swathe in the middle of films yeah. that oh, they'll probably look fine on your TV are really suffering at the cinema. What The answer to it is, I have no idea, but it's definitely gone off in different directions than expected
0: yeah, to. <laughs> interesting to see, yeah.
2: I think what's really fascinating as well is that even like somebody like Spielberg is suffering for it, you know, who's like arguably the architect of like the big kind of event movie in ways, you know, in ways that I don't think are as bad as a lot of his harshest critics in the 70s and 80s made it out to be. You know, I think Jaws is like such a really rich character piece in a way that is so completely divergent from what we would now recognize as like a summer blockbuster, you Absolutely. know. but um. But, like, The Fableman's his new film, which isn't coming out here until, like, the new year, um, like, it's already on streaming in America. You know, it's been out for, like, a month, maybe, in cinemas. And think about it, it's insane. It's like a Steven Spielberg Oscar contender. You know, it's like it's an end-of-year thing. And in years gone by, that would have had, like, a massive rollout. You know, it had been playing in cinemas for months, and it kind of bombed and nobody really bothered going to see it and it's like i know spielberg i think spielberg himself even kind of acknowledged this with um ready player one a few years ago i think that his kind of read on that material was kind of this is the world i've created and i've kind of now got to reckon with the consequences yeah. of that you know um and it's like if even spielberg can't get a film you know in cinemas for more than a month then what chances anybody else got you know and unfortunately that genie's out the bottle and we just kind of gotta try and figure out a way forward from here
0: very quickly before we move on to our next choices, have either of you seen Batman, The Batman?
1: Yes, I have.
0: No, you haven't. Have it's shaking his head. <laughs> no, as much
1: one? as I
2: would love to see, like, Paul Dano, Robert Pattinson and Colin Farrell run about being weird with each other for three that's
1: hours. I real, it, by, yes, by, yes, the by the way, very, a Batman, that, so. that's
0: a good point. I should have mentioned the villains are excellent in it. Yeah. You know?
1: Um Whether I think of it, I, uh, as has been well-documented on this podcast as well, um, but obviously overshadowed by Chris's, um, like hatred of comic book adaptations. I'm not a big fan of that sort of stuff, but I am a big fan of, of Batman films and always have been. I've always really liked Batman. I've always thought he's one of the most interesting sort yes. of characters out there. Um and I've continued to think that. And I actually rewatched all of the, the significant Batman feature films this year, um, in anticipation for the new one. Um and so you can, can understand where my head's at with Batman. Batman Returns is absolute peak for me. Peak Batman for me without a doubt. Rewatching the the Nolan trilogy did not do it for me whatsoever right. really had a lot of problems with it um but I also love Batman forever so sue me I don't care oh, <laughs> um, no. I love it because <laughs> I am I what I love about Batman is it's got those serious undertones but it never or usually up until the Nolan year was never that free to take itself like to poke fun at itself in a lot of ways so when I hear this film, I'm like, hard-boiled, noir, emo Batman, yes, sign me up, that's amazing, definitely, I want to be part of that. Yeah. And it started off and it was great, but it eventually started to drag for me a, l- a little bit. And it it's started- too
0: long, it's too long.
1: Yeah, it really is, and it felt a little self-serious at points, but comedic at others, and I just wish it leaned more into the absurdity of Batman, and it did at times, don't get me wrong, um, but if it really fully embraced how silly it was I loved it, but that said, the production design was out of this world, it was absolutely incredible, Um, and as you said, Glasgow looked Amazing in those scenes, especially towards the end of the film. So, I'd like to revisit again once to kind of, you know, maybe next year or something. But, uh, watch it
0: again,
1: yeah, yeah. But it was interesting, it looked amazing, and I love that emo Batman. I mean, who doesn't? That's great, right? Uh, Yes,
0: next choice. Please. Well,
2: nice transition from Robert Pattinson. A uh, new David Cronenberg film came out this year. His first in eight years, I think, since he last uh, he worked with Robert Pattinson. His last one before his hiatus, uh, Maps to the Stars, and then Cosmopolis before that. Um, but this one doesn't have Pattinson. It, Crimes of the Future, actually has uh, Kristen Stewart in it. Uh, Pattinson's Twilight oh, co-star, and they've both obviously taken very interesting career paths since then. Very like like commendable to both of them for like swerving the the pitfalls of that kind of post teen it Hearts, Rock franchise kind of era they both yeah they've done really well they both turned out to be just incredible actors like the pair of them uh Kristen sure is kind of more of a supporting role in this one so it's, it's called crimes of the future there's a very early cronenberg feature also called crimes of the future which has nothing to do with this He must just like the ring of the title um it's set kind of in the near future with um in a world where um like people have kind of evolved to not really feel pain as much. um, So surgery can just be carried out kind of in the open as a kind of quite casual thing. Uh, Viggo Mortensen and Leo Seydoux play a performance art couple. Um, Viggo Mortensen's body has some kind of mutation where he grows new organs on his body. And their performance art is people watch Lea Seydoux cutting them off. <laughs> Um, So it's very cronenberg and it's like you're not going to mistake this for a film by anybody else. I think there were like four or five different points in the film where I was like this is the most Cronenberg-y thing I've ever seen. And then something else would come along and it'd be like no this is the most Cronenberg-y thing I've ever seen. Like you can sum it up by like there's I think Kristen Stewart has the line but there's the line that they use in the trailer and of course you would because why wouldn't you? She says like surgery is the new sex and if you wanted to condense Cronenberg down <laughs> into like five words, four words, um, Five. I was right the first time. <laughs> um, like that's it. There's so much like that and There's a guy whose like body is made like entirely of ears. Uh he doesn't have any other features on his face, just loads of ears. There's a bit where Viggo Martinson like gets um a kind of cavity hauled out in his stomach and a zipper put on his belly, so Sadu can then perform some kind of oral sex on him. She kind of licks the body cavity. Um but it's actually like, I'm saying all this as if it's just pure gross out like exp- exploitation kind of, all the way through. It's not. I mean, like Cronenberg's one of the best filmmakers in the world. I mean, obviously he started out in kind of like splattery kind of stuff. But as he's grown as a filmmaker, like he hasn't done, he hasn't touched horror or sci-fi in like 20 years. Like the last kind of thing he did along these lines was Existence, which mm-hmm. was like 1999. So um he's coming to this with a lot to say it actually weirdly reminded me of um First Reformed in a way which is my favorite film I think what four years ago now on the pod we talked about it, Paul Schrader's film about like climate change and how you reckon with it and I think like that's stuff like that is on his mind here as well because it, it ends up concerning like a kind of radical Uh, pro evolutionary group who um who are trying to encourage humans to evolve in a way that lets them digest like plastics and toxic waste and they subsist on that so it becomes kind of part of that and um yeah there's again just a, a lot going on there's stuff about like kind of the value of art in a world like that there's stuff about kind of um, religion obviously and cults and all, uh, political movements and all this kind of thing. But um yeah, just great performances across the board. Obviously Cronenberg, you're gonna get some like really great imagery and ideas. Um and it ends with a shot that I think is probably a deliberate tribute to the passion of Joan of Arc. It even goes to black and white and everything. This this moment of transcendence with a look on Vigo's face with a single tear rolling down and it's like that can only be that can only be a Joan of Arc reference. But yeah, I loved it. It's absolutely like you know the king's back. <laughs>
0: Excellent. That sounds like a lot to going on there, but uh, yeah, I must check that out. I'm a big fan of David Cronenberg. Wesley, what's your next choice?
1: Ali, you're going to have to put a disclaimer on this um, episode just for that plot description alone from Chris. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: um, but I definitely need to check that out. Cronenberg's someday I really need to dive more into his filmography. Um, next for me is a complete opposite vibe from Cronenberg, and again goes back to what I was saying about not picking out you know, what I think is ultimately are absolutely the best films of the year, but Something that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, the Banshees of Inisherin. Right. Um, so I'm sure everybody will probably know anyway. You know, it's it's a film by Martin McDonagh, um, who is someone I have a very complicated relationship with. Not not personally, obviously, I don't know him personally. His filmography. Um, I like. I'd imagine most people were first introduced to him um, through In Bruges. Um, I was a huge fan of that when it came out. Um, how well it holds up today is a. Dis- Discussion for another day probably but it did make me really sort of excited to seek out his future work at the time mm-hmm. um but his future work that came was um now remind me here was seven psychopaths Mark McDonough film. yes it was wasn't it so seven psychopaths came out which for me was a bit of a kind of middling disappointment if you like and then more recently or most recently before um and sharing was um three billboards correct yeah thank you chris um, so that, Three Billboards, was a film that, how do I put it, um, I deeply, deeply despised on so many levels. I just could not stand the film whatsoever. So when the buzz picked up around Banshees, I was kind of basically vowed to kind of stay clear of it, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, even though Brendan Gleeson is one of my all-time favourite actors, um, Colin Farrell is always a really interesting watch, whether he's playing in Batman or where he's doing whatever it is, the kind of roles it is he's doing, but... Then my mum had texted me asking if I'd seen Banshee's Inner Sharing yet, um, and telling me how much she loved it, she was raving about it, so off the back of that, I decided to book tickets and shuffled along to the cinema, kind of trepidatiously, I would say, um, and for the first 10 or 15 minutes, I was completely convinced this was just going to be another one of McDonald's films, where it was just going to rub me up the wrong way, to be honest. There was just all these whimsical stereotypes of rural Ireland, and it was just starting to grate on me a little bit. But then as it leaned further into um, absurdism, which I think is I've kind of mentioned for a few films now, that must be the theme of this year for me. Um, it started to become a little bit more introspective and affecting. And I realized that those kind of deliberate caricatures were actually there just to really be de- deconstructed. Now, what I'll say is that it's not to say I think it deconstructs all of the caricatures of Highland pretty successfully. There's still some certainly questionable choices throughout it but it was enough to start me to allow to connect with it more on an emotional level so for anyone who doesn't really know what it's about um already it follows a breakdown of a relationship between two friends on a small rural Irish island island that is so hard to say back to back um as one of the friends decides seemingly quite suddenly suddenly that he doesn't want to talk with the other one anymore and that's as much as the plot will give you because it goes off in a little bit yeah. of a different direction beyond that what I will say is though that it does take part against the backdrop of um the Irish Civil War um which has kind of left to simmer and bubble away in the background right. and I'm really glad that Madonna made that choice to steer clear of integrating it into the wider story too much because I took some moments from it that I thought were quite heavy handed allegory that I didn't really enjoy as much but apparently reading into it That wasn't really on McDonough's mind when making it. So I can only imagine how distracting and politically complex probably it would have been if he'd really leaned into it and tried to weave that into the film a lot more and waded into the kind of civil war elements of it. Um, So he kind of leaves it where it should be, I think. Um, Gleason and Farrell are absolutely, as you would imagine, excellent in this film, but the supporting cast really elevates it, I think, and they breathe so much life into it, especially Colin Farrell's um, sister in the film, um, who's played by Kerry Condon. And um, she's absolutely excellent. She gets a really, really good character arc, I think, which is um, unusual for a McDonough film, I would say, to give her, <laughs> um a female character, a good character arc. Um, there was some really bad stuff with that in, in some of his previous films. But um, yeah, it was really interesting. In terms of who would enjoy it, I think, given that the audience that Bruges has sort of found over the years, if you like, I don't think Banshees would maybe necessarily play as well with some of the subsections of that audience. It's not a big film. It's not a bold film. It's not brash. It's quite quiet in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, But it's very dark. And I'm kind of fine with that, though, because I think while I don't think the film's perfect, I do think that it's a really kind of refreshingly mature companion piece to Ambrose, in a way, and something that's really mature from McDonough that really works to restore that sort of tonal imbalance, if you like, that's been really missing from his work, or at least his on-screen work, I think, for Quite a while now, so yeah, I think maybe over time, depending on what I feel of in Bruges and a rewatch, I think I would maybe go as far out to say it's probably his best film to date. Um, yeah. So yeah, very interesting film. I
0: will I will check that out because when I heard about it, my first thought was, it's the lost episode of Father Ted where Ted stops talking to Dougal.
1: Ali, that is literally how it's honestly it starts like that, and I was ter- I was like, I can't watch this full film like this, but. You start to move, well, you can, you start to move beyond those kind of caricature elements a little bit, and it develops into something more darker mm-hmm. in tone and in meaning, which is quite interesting. But yes, those caricatures really are at the forefront of the start of the film, and it put me off quite a bit, which is why I'm not fully sold on it. But yeah, interesting.
0: Chris, have you seen this film?
2: Yeah, I thought, I yeah, I was also kind of like, it's good, but I'm not like... <laughs> I'm not head over heels for it. Like, I think like a lot of the kind of, I think it's maybe being mischaracterized as a comedy a lot of the time. is pretty tragic for a lot of it. And I think like we saw, uh, was it opening night? It was definitely like a Friday night. And again, a very busy GFT. And I should say, when we're talking about cinema attendances, I, like the GFT has been stowed out this year, yeah. Yeah. like consistently to a level that I don't really remember it being pre-pandemic. So
1: on that as well, yeah. Banji's stuck around in the cinema for a long time yeah. here, way longer than I think anyone anticipated it to. Yeah.
2: But I think part of that is to do with people just being fond of Irish stuff. And I think a lot of the laughs it was getting was like, they're Irish, they're naturally hilarious. And it's like, this is a tragic thing that is happening. I don't think it's it desert, it needs the belly laughs that it's getting, you know. Like, so there's there's a lot That's of that for it. And I think like I don't know. Yeah, like I'm kind of similar with McDonough. I really liked In Bruges when it first came out. I haven't seen it since 2008. And I did not like Seven Psychopaths or Three Billboards at all. Um, and I don't think he's quite back on the level with this one yet, but I think he is more in the right direction than he has been for a while.
0: That's interesting. Okay, my fourth choice is Martin Robertson's docu- Robertson's documentary, Ride the Wave. You're aware of that about the 14 year old surfer? So, no, 14 year old Ben Larg uh, and his family live uh, on the god, I can't remember which island it is, but one of the islands up in Scotland. And he is a Scottish junior surfing champion when we meet them, you know. But he wants to go to what they call the big waves, and big waves should be been caps because these things are mad. And so, the, it's about uh, well, ostensibly, it's about him going to ride these big waves off the coast of Ireland where uh, the, the two of the biggest ones are and uh, but there's a real human story going on as well it's really about his family um he's been bullied at school um uh, probably because he's been sent here there and everywhere to take part in you know surfing contests and, and and then coming back so he ends up being homeschooled um because he just can't No, it's not happening at school you've got this story really about the parents are both surfers they run a surf school so they really understand what's going on and it's that kind of push and pull between wanting to protect their son yet wanting to let him fulfill his ambitions and in this case those are in the most opposite directions you can imagine you know we want to keep him safe but do we let him go and ride this huge wave and you do not sugarcoat what can happen to people there's a guy uh, in a terrifically dry way, who's kind of showing them videos, this is the waves that we ride, but this is what happens when someone breaks a femur, and there's a picture of the leg snapped and all the, and, oh, and his poor mum in particular is really thinking, I really want him to go and be his own man and do this, but he's 14 year old, and, you know, how do we approach this? So, eventually, I'm not going to spoil what happens at the end, but, He has to. They have to let him go and do what he needs to do, whatever the results of that might be. They need to step back and let him grow into the circle of other surfers who are all much, much older. This is a young surfer by quite a bit compared to the other people he's now kind of hoping to emulate and ride in these big waves. there's little as cinematic as somebody on a surfboard on a big wave. That's just, you know, big Wednesday, point break, whatever you want to think. It's a great thing to have on film. And this really doesn't disappoint. Um, yeah, but it's it's as I say, at its, it's heart, it's the family dynamic and the family story, and it's about again growing up and 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 going out of that thing and how much you let your kids, I mean, some people will find it absolutely heartbreaking, I'm sure, because it's about letting your kids go at a certain point and just hoping that they'll be okay. And that's not like, oh, well, he wants to go to a gig on a Friday night in the bars, and I hope he'll be okay, as my mum might have thought when I was going kind to of that age. It's He's going <laughs> he's going out there, look at it, and, uh, and, and trying to kind of get back safe. Uh, I should also say the music is by Scott Twynum, who's one of my favourite musicians. Scott was one of the original people in Looper, uh, but he's gone on to do this incredibly cinematic, often piano-based short pieces, Uh, really, really beautiful music. And I would buy this soundtrack. I think it is out on this as a soundtrack. Um, And the music is just part of it. And Martin Robertson's filming is, again, a bit like the Hermit of Traig. It's difficult not to make these things look spectacular because human nature or human nature, nature at that level is spectacular. At that grand level that they're, they're seeing this uh, little little people, and you go, oh, there's people out there, and there's, there's there's times like that. You just can't believe they're doing it. I mean, I mean, fuck that, basically. I don't know where I am but all oh, fair play to them that want to do it. Uh, is it a film either of you are aware of? No, not at
2: all. I'd heard of it, but I didn't see it.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it's really good. It's uh, it's uh, really, uh, as I say, it's beautifully shot. And it's Ben himself is a teenage boy. So you've got the sulks and, the, you know, um, turning his cheek on his mum when she goes to kiss him and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you've got an old guy whose thing is, now you have to worry about the waves, but more than that, you have to worry about girls. This is in Ireland, this guy tells him. Uh, so there's lots of stuff like that. It's a very good film. Uh, yeah, Ride the Wave. I would check it out.
2: This your final choice for this year. I'm going to be cheeky here and do a quick rundown of what didn't make the slot, just because there's a lot. I, I I deliberated over this for a while and agonized, so uh, apologies to Memoria, Bread Factory, Red Rocket, Il Bucco, uh, Funny Pages, After Yang, and Armageddon Time. And uh, if I was doing the whole Cahiers de Cinema, everything is cinema approach to these lists, then I would probably have put uh, Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal here, which was a six-part HBO series, and is one of the best things I saw all year in any medium. It's incredible, uh, and check it out if you haven't seen it. I don't want to spoil it, because it's best discovered on your own um but i'm gonna go for white noise right and uh the final slot which is no bumback's adaptation of uh don DeLillo's uh landmark of postmodernism. i'm told i haven't actually read white noise I'm, I, I like liked a lot but I have, that's one i haven't read uh, like a devoured underworld in the early days of lockdown and i think it instantly became one of my all-time favorite books but um yeah so i, I guess maybe that's the best way to approach this because i don't have anything to compare it to and i, I can't really gauge how well He's Translated the tone of the book to the screen, but all I know is from watching it is like I really enjoyed what I saw. <laughs> um, it's a kind of break for from what's gone before for Noah Bomba because he's kind of best known for these kind of almost kind of like Woody Alleny, kind of Wit Stillman ish, mm-hmm. kind of like low key kind of character pieces, kind of often set in like New York or I guess LA lately as well. Um, and um, it's not that it's like Netflix gave him a budget of about 120 million dollars for this, if reports are to be believed, and every single penny of it is on screen that ends up kind of somewhere between like spielberg and repo man um it's this kind of satire of like 80s consumerism and um like i mean where do you even start with what is satirizing like academia um like media um you know like you know toxic waste and disasters that we're wreaking upon ourselves um like there's just so much going on with it um and yeah, I had a blast with it. I thought it was really funny. Like, it was maybe Bombach's funniest film since Mistress America, which I think is maybe the single funniest film in the 2010s. Um, reunites him again with his, his off-screen partner, Greta Gerwig, who hasn't actually acted on screen in the film since about 2016 now, I think, she's been busy directing her own stuff. Um, so it's great to see her again. She's paired with Adam Driver, who has also been in previous Bombach films. Um, they play a, a married couple who are each on their fourth marriage. Uh, it's set in 1984, I think, mid-80s, certainly. And um, Adam Driver plays a professor of Hitler Studies at the local college. Um uh he's kind of a fraud. He's not really able to speak any German. Um, so, you know, he has all these kind of anxieties around this. And they're split into three sections, uh, which uh, from from my research, the book also is. Um, and um, the first section is kind of just t- kind of taking the the tenor of day-to-day life and their kind of like environment, you know, this kind of like affluent middle-class American suburbia, you know, like he's uh, lecturing through the day. She's developing an addiction to some kind of pharmaceuticals at home um you know they spend a lot of time in the supermarket you know the the shelves are all kind of is that Rico Man style like you know nothing's branded it's all kind of just written on kind of like cereal soda all that kind of stuff um but in the second half uh or not the second half the second section um there's the what they refer to as the airborne toxic event where where a train crash unleashes a chemical spillage and everybody in their kind of locality is evacuated and then it becomes a kind of like 80s spielberg kind of thing you know there's lots of like people gazing at stuff off camera in wonder and fear and awe um and that's when you can really see the budget put to work it's unlike anything bombback's ever done before it's so packed of like visual invention and like there's a lot of sight gags in it that couldn't possibly have come from the book because no matter how good a writer don DeLillo is like it's not going to be a, as effective to be like oh a guy runs out in front of a car which stops and then runs him over anyway you know like that's not going to have the same kind of impact as actually seeing that happen on screen um and then yeah in the in the the third section it kind of shifts again to another it's almost kind of like a trilogy of like interrelated stories you know with the, following this family through all of them but yeah I, I had an absolute blast with it again like talk about like putting putting the money on screen like top gun did like it's one of these ones that like i feel like a lot of filmmakers are doing this just now where it's like we might never get a chance to make films of this scale ever again so we might as well go out in style
1: yes, you course. know like, there's a lot of that
2: kind of like mid-level filmmaking that's not quite blockbuster style. again it's just mind-blowing to me that netflix gave them the money for this i don't know what they intended to get out of it because like and they've done it in increasing like this is the third noah back film in a row that they funded i don't know that Netflix's target audience are necessarily massive Noah Bombach fans like it started with like the Meyerowitz stories and then marriage story obviously and now this and I don't know if they just think he's their shortcut to like award success or anything you know maybe something like of
1: this course. but yeah,
2: to give the man a $120 million when he's never done anything like this in his life is really like, I've got no idea what was going on, but I'm glad it did.
0: And I know the M word, we try not to speak uh, in terms of Marvel, but they started doing that a bit. They got the kind of indie directors and threw them into doing and with very, very varied results, I think.
2: Yeah. yeah, but I think that's the thing. It's like it's seen as like a shortcut to credibility, right? But then inevitably, with Marvel, like Kevin Feige ends up having the final sale and everything, so it still ends up just looking like every other Marvel film, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with those indie directors getting their paycheck and you know mm. their name out there and moving on to something else. I mean, that's absolutely fine. No if I'm still not going to watch it, but it's it's good in that in that respect. But I had no idea about. I I'd, I saw this film sort of fail into my radar a little bit. And I saw it was born back, and I thought, mm, I kind of need to be in the mood to watch a born back film. I had no idea it was as big a budget as that, and also anything like if you described all that to me, I'd like that's never a Bond back film. That's yeah, yeah,
2: really it's, it's wild. Like it's an absolutely again like. Just a great one to see with crowd. I mean, there wasn't a massive crowd. It was the start of this cold spell. So there was maybe a bit like, uh, well, contrary to my previous statement, Screen One of the GFT was not absolutely rammed <laughs> for the opening night of White Noise. But uh, I think it's like, it's one of these Netflix ones where it gets like a week run at the cinema and then like, it's going to be on Netflix, I think before the end of the year. So I would say keep an eye out for it. And I would also say, probably will lose something on the small screen just in terms of the sheer scale of it. But like, I cannot believe it exists in the form that it does. And I'm I'm glad it does. I think it will divide people. It's got a kind of tone that if you don't get on board with it right away, it's going to be a long two and a quarter hours, but uh, I, I just hit a real sweet spot for me. Just that kind of, you know, smart people doing very stupid things is exactly my kind of, you know, my preference when it comes to it comes to comedy, I think. So, yeah. I'll enjoyed
0: it for that, if it's coming to Netflix a nice one Where's what's your final choice
1: so my final choice was just teed up really nicely by Chris in terms of um, people doing very stupid stupid things my final choice is actually Jackass Forever believe it or not <laughs>
0: um,
1: masterpiece masterpiece indeed um, so this also I mean I said I wasn't going to do a lot from earlier in the year but I don't think you really need to retain much from Jackass Forever to really be able to talk about it but it also kind of paired with me going on a jackass journey at the start of the year and the build-up to it, which um, I am not ashamed to admit, and enjoyed every single minute of it. Um, jackass and everything that came with it, I think, um, for bad or good, um, better or worse, was an absolute perf- like formative piece of art, I think, that has totally shaped my life and the lives of so many people that I know. And if you think that's completely hyperbolic and ridiculous, um, then how about if I tell you that a series of films where guys frequently get their dicks out and administer the most unholiest of pain to areas of body your body that you would never even want to think about happening to, then how about if I tell you my theory is that Jackass Forever is actually a really tender takedown of toxic masculinity and a really sort of loving portrait and profound tale about ageing because that is definitely what it is. Um, I'm obviously not going to go deeply into everything about that, but if I've like can sort of quickly break it down. I think growing up for me, at least, I never really felt, quote-unquote, masculine. I had a very deep interest in a lot of certain things that society expected, um, you know, a boy to like, if you like, such as football and whatever else, you know, action figures and Star Wars or whatever. Um, But I was also really interested in pop culture toys and stories that would be really deemed as probably feminine, quote-unquote. Um, now, obviously, I'm a um you know straight cisgendered man, so I'm not trying to say that this was like a really difficult part of my upbringing because it wasn't. But I didn't skew one way or the other as you really shouldn't or shouldn't have to feel like you need to, and I never really gave it much thought either. But I started to slowly become aware as I got older that I wasn't fully accepted into what was kind of you know a more male-dominated environment. A lot of the time, I never really felt uncomfort- comfortable in it, mm-hmm. so. Grown up watching Jackass you would think immediately that what people know about Jackass you would think then that I would have felt really excluded from watching that as well because it feels very testosterone driven you know male heavy like masculinity all over the place and when I watched it when I was younger I always felt that there was completely something different about it something different about the bond that they had and that they still share today as well and throughout like the history of the jackass franchise if you like bar a few maybe missteps here and there it's always just been about guys or dudes if you like getting together pushing their limits and just like being really open and willing to be completely vulnerable around each other and that's something that boys and men are just not conditioned into believing should ever be allowed really um but here they are like okay mocking each other of course they are but they're looking out for each other as well they're in on it together they're not othering people they weren't mocking women for example which a lot of things that tried to mimic jackass at the time were doing they weren't even really trying to up one another on the kind of masculinity stakes because i think the joy that they find in the process and what we kind of find as viewers is all in basically if you break it down a bit deeper is how futile like bravado and exaggerated displays of masculinity is when all of that can just be completely undone by a swift smack of the balls. <laughs> and I mean, really, like honestly, what is more beautiful than that? And I think Jackass Forever really continues that trend well, but with new faces. It has its first um, black crew members. It's got its first women to join the crew. Um, and none of it feels tokenistic either, as it shouldn't. They just slot right in, as they should be, and are completely accepted because the Jackass family is universal. And if you can't laugh at yourself, you can't, be vulnerable around each other and you can't look out for each other and support each other then you're not good enough to be part of that world which kind of flies in the face of what toxic masculinity is a lot of the time at least on the surface Um, so it's great I just loved it I had such a good time and it also goes back to what you were saying earlier um, Ali about aging but it also makes me feel better about aging in a way because this is the third jackass film I think I've now watched in the cinema and it's opening week um One of which actually was the pinnacle of 3D cinema, which I'm not usually a fan of, but trying to dodge a giant golden dildo flying at your head was um, quite memorable, to say the least. Uh, But it's like a familiar comfort blanket when you watch it and you turn it on, despite them getting older. And it's also not afraid. Jackass Forever um, isn't afraid to really show those things that are changing. And to say that that's okay that things are changing and people are getting older, their bodies might be getting weaker. They might be checking out of some of the stunts but the joy and the bond that they've created together is like sort of everlasting and i watched that with one of my best i watched it with one of my best friends Um, she and i went in its opening week chose the biggest screen in london that we could find to try and share the joy with like a packed cinema as it turns out i think we ended up picking one of the most expensive cinemas and it was just three us and three other people <laughs> but we still had the absolute best time watching it just cackling away together without like a care in the world and It just, I don't know, it just sums up a kind of cinematic experience and an experience that's just really important to me. Um, And it does it all in a way that just doesn't really harm that many people outside of their own crew who are all in on the joke. And it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of cinema. And it was great having that after a year of tense struggle during, obviously, the end of the kind of lockdowns last year.
0: I think it's really interesting because Jackass, to me, They had to be. There has to be a level of trust with them and a lack of ego. Those two things. Otherwise, they'd be kicking the shit out of each other. It's not. There's an acceptance that we're all in this together. So leave everything at the door, and you know whatever happens happens, and we'll be happy for each other. You know whatever at the end of the day when when it's all done, it's kind of people just. Enjoying the absurdity of themselves and of life in kind of general, and I think a good point is a lot of this TV that thought they were doing Jackass stuff afterwards was horrible because oh, it awesome. was just, and for a while a lot of telly was like that. It was cruel, and it was uh, it would mock and all of those things. And Jackass never did that, so that's yeah. that's a really good choice. Chris, are you a fan?
2: Yeah, um, quite, quite similar it was. Like I grew up with Jackass. Like I was like probably what, 13, 14 when Jackass started? So it was exactly the right age for it. But yeah, you're right. Like, none of his imitators ever came close. And, like, it's one of those things that you maybe don't even realize at the time why, like, Dirty Sanchez was such a massive pile of shit next to Jackass. But, like, you, you realize when you get older, oh, it's because they, they, they're they all great pals. Like, there's a warmth to Jackass. Like, it's just these guys, like, kind of making themselves laugh. There's no intent to, like, humiliate other people or, like, go out of their way to, like... I mean... There were a couple of, like, hidden camera things in the original Jackass, and those were always, like, the weakest parts of it for me. The Like, the, the best things about Jackass were always just them trying to make each other laugh, yeah. you know? And it's, it is it's really genuinely, like, heartwarming to see them all still friends. Well, minus Bam, but most of them still friends <laughs> over you know, like, a couple of decades later and they've aged together and they're all still, like, doing this, you know? I mean, like, I guess you could make an argument It's kind of like what I was saying with, like, um, Alana and Licorice Pizza where, oh, well, they're still doing this 20 years later. <laughs> they're still, you know, they're but all... They're still loving it as
0: well. They're so, still loving yeah, doing
2: it. Yeah, they're all happy doing it. Nobody seems to not want to be there, you know? And, like, I mean, everybody... It is just so good natured and like John Knoxville is just such. It's one of the most naturally funny people and like so charismatic and like he's he's like the perfect ringleader for something like that. And you only need like one person like that, and everybody else to be like good natured enough to go along with it to, to for that something like that to work. You know, it was yeah, it was riotous. So I also saw opening night and loved it. i was uh, glad we could
1: share in the beauty of Jackass this year. Yeah. A beautiful Christmas gift to everyone.
0: It is absolutely it is. Now, my final choice um, is really a TV series, but it was showing the whole thing at the Glasgow Film Festival, so I'm going to claim it as a movie. It's on iPlayer at the moment. It's Skint, um, which are seven episodes long. off for kind of standalone. They're, they're kind of short 15-minute pieces. I, it's the star. There's one with them, Derry Girl, Saoirse Monica, Jackson... Uh, we've got Michael Sosha, uh, Emma Fryer, Gary Beadle, Isis Hainsworth and Tamara Brabin. They're all central characters. There's writers involved. The writers are amazing, like um, Lisa McGee, Kerry Hudson, uh, Jenny Fagan, um, Byron Vincent and 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 others. But the one I want to kind of focus on is The Taking of Balgray Hill Street, which stars Peter Mullen as Donnie, and the writer is James Price. And it's... As I say, they're all kind of a, almost like one man, you know, or one person pieces, but there are some other characters involved. Mullen's great as this guy who really, the plot revolves around him wanting to get some curry sauce from the council food parcels without being caught doing so. And the kind of extraordinary lengths that he goes to for this thing. Um It's Mullen, it's almost like a, Peter Mullen character, but written by Lemmy. There's a kind of absurdity to this guy as well. You know, um, I'm thinking about Dee Dee, uh, when I think about uh, Lemmy characters. Um, it's they're all they're all brilliant, they're all worth seeing. Um, it's a classic example of what can be done. One person, great writer, short man at a time. Here's uh, and it was all about it's called skint because everyone in it, you know, is struggling to. To make money and to make ends meet as well. That's the thing. They're in various different jobs, um, and there's all sorts of themes about pride, about a uh, um about having to deal with other people who are looking down upon you because of your social status, uh, all of those things. But did either, if you see skint or any of skint? Oh, oh, did you? Did you? Did I freeze? You did. You're for biased. how long? Not long, not right, okay. long. Wait, a few well, ask, wait, so what I was going to ask is if either of you saw uh, Skint or any of them?
2: Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Um, but it was mainly because uh, because of the taking of Balgary Hill Street because it's written and directed by James Price, who I talked about a couple of years ago. He wrote and directed ah, okay. Boy's Night, which I was one of my top five um, in 2020, I think. It was a short film that he made. Uh, and yeah, I think he's one of the most exciting filmmakers in the country just now. I think he's just like he's he's the one to keep an eye on like i I can't wait for him to like actually get a feature made um because he's so sharp like as a writer and he's got such a great eye as a director as well and he really kind of knows his stuff and him being paired with peter mullen was such a kind of like yeah yeah, this makes so much sense this is so this is such a great combination of talent um i think he's actually the character is actually inspired by his dad um so I, i think a lot of it's kind of drawn from life um but yeah, it was great. I think that was, like, yeah, Balgray Hill Street was far and away the standout for me. He also directed uh, another one, of them, the one with Michael Socia, and it was also directed by James Price. Um, But, yeah, those, those two were, like, yeah. But Balgray Hill Street in particular was was a standout for me. I thought it was great. Where can yeah. uh, one watch this, Skinner?
0: This is available. All episodes are available on iPlayer at the moment. Great. We'll you can on. go and check them. And they are all worth seeing, but I would agree with you. I think uh, that is a highlight. Um. Yeah, just this man who's kind of wrestling with um no, I don't need any help, I'm okay, and then suddenly spying the the actually some curry sauce for that might go quite well. It's it's just very it's uh, it's a great piece of 15 minute film, isn't it? It's a great short film, yeah. basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, guys, well, I was gonna talk a little bit about Telly, but i I think we've we we have we have we we've given the people what they want, which Run. is 15 recommendations. As,
1: and a lot of what they don't want. And a lot
0: of what they don't want. Yeah. <laughs> um. Thanks very much for doing this. It's great to see you both.
1: Yeah, you too. Pleasure as always. One of my favourite times of the year. Oh, great. Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't be Christmas without it. No. Nope.
0: And hopefully uh, we can catch up soon in, in real life. Uh, that would be great. That'd be lovely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the end of our best of 2022 podcasts. But we will be back soon probably in the new year with someone completely different.